You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Experiencing Data. And today I've got Joost Zeu on the line from Amsterdam. You're not from Amsterdam, but that's where you're calling in from today. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Nice. Um, we all moved to Amsterdam uh, for, uh, for work at some point. It's our, uh, it's our version of the brain drain. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, I'm, I'm, ha- I'm really happy to have you on the show here. We met briefly in the hallway after your talk at, at Predictive Analytics World in London. Uh, and, and I enjoyed your talk there. And so you're, just to give some context, you're the product owner of primary care and medical data scientist at PacMed. So tell us about what PacMed is and what does that mean? What do you, what's your role like day to day over there? Uh, yeah, correct. Well, first of all, maybe uh, PacMed, the company that I work at, and we are a startup in Amsterdam, moving towards being a skill up, depending on your definition, of course. And uh, we make uh, data-driven uh, decision support systems for in the uh, healthcare system. And we really focus on really making um, medical products, so really um, uh, supporting and helping out physicians, uh, doctors, nurses in taking uh, the best possible decision by analyzing vast amounts of data. And PacMed in that has a threefold mission, which is, first of all, try to make sure that every single patient gets the treatment that has proven to work for him or her and based on, uh, based on prior data analysis. And next to that, we then say, well, if an algorithm can learn all these uh, awesome insights generated by thousands and thousands of doctors, then a doctor using one of those products is also very capable of learning more and more things from the lessons that are incorporated in this, uh, in this algorithm, in this product. And finally, of course, healthcare is a, is a very expensive uh, part of the world. Um, I think in most developed Western countries, it's, uh, it's the biggest expenditure for a government. And we are trying to uh, maximize the uh, efficiency and the effectivity of, uh, of that budget by uh, making sure everybody gets a treatment that has the highest probability of working for him or her. One thing I wanted to ask you already here was you, you mentioned, if, if I heard this right, you talked about, you know, the, the multitude of doctors out there also looking at a system like this, a decision support solution like this as a way of learning about what prescriptions, what um, treatments may make sense. Do you, do you think that they're going into this with the perception that they might have something to learn from this just as much as like, it's kind of like we probably look at it like the tool or the product is subordinate to the doctor's decision-making. And there's like a, there's a perception there, right? That this, this tool is kind of subordinate and it's, as you said, decision support, which I also love that you mentioned that because that's really what it's about. Right. But at the same time, do you think they're, they're coming in at looking at it? Like I might find uh, a treatment that I haven't thought about, or maybe I didn't, realize it was as as effective as apparently it has been historically is that 
Are they coming in the door with that perception? Well, I think I think that's a very difficult question uh-huh. um, because at the moment I I don't really know whether they would have that perception um, from the get go. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point, it should be uh, like that. And say, for example, the analogy that I really like to use is that um, back in the days in university, I um, did a program on uh, nuclear technology. Mm-hmm. So you learn all this stuff about uh, MRI scanners and PET scanners and uh, all that sort of radiology stuff. Um, and basically what, what those things do, what, the, what, what those technologies do is they allow the doctor to do or see something that they themselves cannot see, right? They allow you to look into the body. If you, if you go to a, to, a lab, to a laboratory in a hospital, they, they, they analyze, well, basically every bodily fluid that there is which is which gives you information uh, as a doctor that you would never ever have been able to to get by yourself mm-hmm. and i think that the uh, offering a a data product like this is really a another tool in that toolbox that allows the doctor to pierce through this insane amount of complexity that there is in giving care to a patient so really what we want to do is, well, given the situation of the patient and given this, uh, let's say, five different treatment options, we predict that these will be the probabilities of success for those different treatment options, given these reasons. Mm-hmm. And in such a scenario, it's still going to be up to the, to the doctor, of course, to, to make a decision on this. So to, to really say, well, I, I agree with this or... Maybe I don't for eh, for reasons that are um, lodged in their expertise. And we really see these machine learning systems as an extra help, a technological help to allow the doctor to see something that a normal human being can't do, mm-hmm. which is uh, seeing through a vast amount of complexity and historical data and, and really get the lessons from that. Mm-hmm. The you- you used some language here just a second ago, and, and you mentioned giving a probability for an outcome and then the reasons for that that recommendation that came from the machine learning that you're doing. Is, is that correct summary so far? Yeah. So, no. so tell me, bec- if I feel like this is an interesting thing to juggle because I, I'm, I'm curious, did the, the choice, did the design and the experience which requires you for various reasons to want and or need or perhaps legally require you to explain why the model chose uh, this as the, this not chose, but it, it thinks that there's an 82% chance that this particular remedy is right and here's why. Was there a discussion about balancing the fact that it's only 82% accurate and it gave four different possible remedies but this model gives us the transparency into why it recommended those four different treatment paths versus some other model that perhaps was more accurate, but it was more black box and it didn't explain why it just said, you know, wrap the arm in a cast, send patient home five days of sleep <laughs> with no explanation yeah. of why did you have to juggle that or, or that really wasn't a fact like that end user experience that you wanted. Was that a factor in the algorithm uh, design in the modeling, the model choice, or 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 it wasn't it wasn't like that. Um, well, of course, that is always a question that comes to mind. 
Um, however, practically, we don't really experience this problem because actually the, the perspective that we choose from the beginning is we are going to make uh, a, a non-black box. So right. we're going to make a transparent system uh, because we, we believe that that is going to be the best tool that we can give to doctors such that we can create a synergy between uh, the medical expert and, uh, and the technology that we offer. Also, indeed, uh, legally isn't really, the, I don't know whether legally is the proper word, but let's indeed stick with, stick with leg legally. Compliance or something. Yeah, if, if we would say compliance, I understand you guys have the FDA. In, uh, in Europe, we have a, what you call a CE certification. Getting compliance with those regulations is way more easy when you have an insightful model. Right. And also, and th that is actually one of the biggest factors in, uh, in, in, in this consideration, that when we look at healthcare data, we generally don't have a very large amount of data. So from a person perspective, we are very lucky that not a lot of people end up in hospital. From a uh, data perspective, that's too bad because it means that we don't have for, uh, for a certain disease area, for example, millions and millions and millions of data points that would right. allow us to make in a very complex and deep neural networks, for example. So we haven't really gotten to the point yet where we had a medical problem, a disease area where we had to take into account, well, using a, a black box model really increases accuracy significantly. What should we do? Got it. Got it. <clears throat> so it sounds like it's... It in some ways, fortunately, it wasn't a factor. In, in other ways, it makes some of the technical work a little bit more difficult because you don't your your prediction accuracy isn't going to be as high. But I, I as I always say, you know, it's like, well, you could get really high, but if you have a low ad, low customer adoption, then does it matter that you found a really high accuracy <laughs> if no one's using yeah. the service because they don't trust it? So we have to look beyond the the technical precision and kind of consider the factor that there's no decision support happening. And is that, is that a valid outcome if there's no decision support occurring, you know? Um, so, and that, that kind yeah. of ties into your talk, right? Like you, so part of the reason I wanted you on the show is, is because you mentioned that kind of, you know, one of the, the core factors as you guys build out and, and PacMed is still building out this product, we should say. So you're, you're kind of in this, I don't know if you self-identify as like really in the core startup phase or, or a little bit more mature than that. Uh, but I, I thought it was funny you had the, these four quadrants, uh, you know, the data scientists make the awesome model, the data engineer models in isolation are useless, the medical expert saying, how will this increase the quality of care? And then the designer talking about, you know, how the hell can anybody use that? And yep. that these things have to come together to produce a product or an outcome that's actually, uh, first of all, worth it's, it's actually going to increase uh, health outcomes, but also is a viable commercial product that that you know, th that can function. So tell me about this design piece. Like how does this factor into how you're approaching PacMed's uh, solution here? Like what, what does it mean to factor design into data science like this? Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's pure the design part, mm -hmm. but it is of course a, a part of the user interaction and the UI part mm -hmm. where we have to say, this model has to be used by, by healthcare professionals on a daily basis. And as I also mentioned in my talk briefly, all these healthcare professionals at home will have an iPhone, this and that, and are used to working with, with 
well, basically all modern technology, which works perfectly and seamlessly. And it's like it's an extension of your arm and you will understand how it works within a second. And that's, uh, that's setting the bar very, very high for new software developers, mm-hmm. especially if there's such a complex system like machine learning that's, that's working under the hood. Mm-hmm. So what we have to do in that is, is, is make it in such a way that it's, it fits into the workflow of the user. And I've, I've, I've seen multiple projects that we consider doing and then after visiting uh, the hospital, for example, and, and just job shadowing for a day, you very far quickly come to the conclusion, this is, this is not going to work here. So it's an interesting problem to predict, but it's impossible that these doctors will take a couple of minutes to walk to a screen somewhere, punch in some, some information and then get a prediction on something. That's just not how, for example, emergency medicine works. So our design part really comes even before designing anything is does it work does it fit into the workflow of people that already have well maybe one of the most demanding jobs in the world and on part of them really the user interaction so the design it has to be clear instantly what it is what we do and what we say mm-hmm. and this is also where the regulatory part and the compliance part comes in the end it also really has to be clear that for example if our model says well we think that this person has, a, say, an increased probability of, uh, of dying within the next couple of days. And one of the features that predict this is the fact that, uh, I don't know, they did a certain blood test two days ago. So medical doctors, uh, they are all uh, scientifically educated. So you think much more in terms of causal relations. So then a very sensible conclusion is okay so if i stop doing this blood test on the second day i will improve the health outcomes of my patients Mm -hmm. and so it's really important and difficult for us to to really show them this is the prediction this is what and with this these are the features this this is how we explain this prediction however that does not mean that if you would start to tinker with some of these predictors that, that there's a causal relation to the health outcome that we will find. Mm. And that's really uh, yeah, a, a difficult landscape to, uh, to be in. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you take us back? So I, you just mentioned like you went out and shadowed some, you know, it sounded like you some healthcare professionals or doctors uh, in their normal uh, job routine. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So Right there, I think that's already, uh, first of all, I think that's awesome behavior to, to do when you're in the process of figuring out what the solution should be, and that's not normal. So was this abnormal for you to do, or like what, what, what made you think that you needed to go do that, or what was the impetus for that? And I'm curious, was there one particular insight that you gleaned that really stuck with you? Like, wow, I never would have factored that into anything we're doing with this product. Did, did you have a particular thing you can remember yeah 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 most definitely uh, more more things than we have time to discuss on this show i guess <laughs> Great. <That's, laughs> honestly those those job shadowing days have been have been some of the most insanely exciting and and just awesome experiences that you have and being a non-doctor and being allowed to 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 go through for example an emergency department for a full day and seeing what goes on there that is yeah, that, that's just incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but uh, I have two or three examples. The, the first one is indeed, say, from this emergency department. And we were thinking there whether we could make a product that could predict if a patient comes into the emergency department, then the, the nursing staff does what you call a triage. Don't know whether I'm pronouncing it correctly in yes, English. But yes. Uh-huh. So basically, they estimate how severe or how bad is the medical situation of this patient. And therefore, how long can he or she wait until he or she gets medical attention, right? Mm-hmm. If, it's a, if it's a swollen foot, then, then somebody that comes in with a heart attack has priority over that person. Mm-hmm. However, what you see in practice is that these are very difficult estimations and they, they don't always get it right. And there is some optimization to be gained in assigning the right level of urgency to these patients coming in. And we had experience with with doing such a classification from from another product that we were building and we said well it's very comparable maybe we can do that in the in the uh in the er the emergency room as well so we went for a day of job shadowing and we realized patients come in and if it's if it's somewhat urgent or or somebody has some time on their hands they will just go go along with the process of of monitoring or, or or diagnosing or treating that patient and then maybe in hindsight they will fill in some of the information that they got in a computer so the data set that we would get of this is the intake of this patient really half of that could have been gathered by after the patient had already left the emergency room and yeah that that's something that's that you can't know up front right another example and that's way more user-centered actually is that we were we were looking at building a product that could help to uh, to get a better estimation of um, what doses of a certain medication different patients would need mm-hmm. which sounds really interesting and nice and then we talked to the people that were giving this dose and and that did some user research and these and they said yeah it sounds very nice if you guys would make something that would make this more accurate for us however we also have to do 2,000 patients per person per day. So we don't have 10 or 20 extra seconds on these patients to fiddle, out, fiddle around with this nice little tool that you guys are making. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really not the information or the insights that you get when you talk to, for example, the, say, the medical manager of such a facility because they are, they are not like in the trenches doing this day by day. Right. And did so? What what was your outcome from that? Did you guys just did you kind of abandon work on that product because you realized they weren't going to spend the time to get the insight from it, or how did you? What change did you make with that information, if any? Uh, well, for the first example, that uh, emergency room uh, product, we said, yeah, this is just not going to be possible uh, for the very simple reason that. To, to feed an algorithm, to, to, to get a prediction from it, you need the input data. And if the right. input data is actually not present at the moment where you need the prediction, that's really at the end of the line. Uh-huh. For the other product, so the second one, we noticed and we learned that actually, say, 90% of the patients out of these 2,000 that they do go on a very high pace, but there's 200 of them that are that are very difficult to, to get a proper doses for. And that might actually be the ones that, that need most help. And that is something that a product like ours could, uh, 
could help with. Mm -hmm. But that, of course, it does falsely change your proposition. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you 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 learn and you adapt by this, and you you change uh, what what your expected impact would be because now you only look at ten percent of the patient population, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you have to reconsider, well, huh, is that still worth it uh, for us, uh, but mainly also for, for the, the healthcare organization that's giving this care? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's the, you, you, you narrow down basically, and we decided to focus on uh, the subgroup of patients that, where they, they do have a longer time period to, uh, to treat them. Got it, got it. So would you say that it's, it sounds like you agree that's, it's time well spent, even if the answer is let's stop working on this idea because it's not going to get, it's not feasible for whatever reason, it's not going to be used or it's not valuable or it's not going to drive the health outcome. It sounds like you, you feel like that was still a, a good use of, of time and resource to go do this shadowing. Is that right? It, for every single product that we started working on where we did not do this, we, uh, we really bashed our heads against the walls. <laughs> because we found, we found these problems later on uh, when yep. we already had invested and spent time and energy and effort and money on on making these products, and then you realize, ah, actually, uh, this uh, this might not see the rate of adoption that we uh, we hoped it would get. Mm -hmm. well, and and how? What it sounds like a like a light switch went on, or someone said, "Wait a second, like instead of building the product and then going out and seeing and if it's going to be used <laughs> and it's going to create the value that we yeah. wanted to, how did it change at at PacMed? like what what was the driver to say, "Wait a second, let's go let's talk to some doctors, let's go shadow their work and see how do we build a solution that fits naturally into the work of a healthcare provider? Where did that come from that that drive? Um, I think, well, the, I presume the, the drive really has always been there. Um, but you also need to be able, need to be able as a company to, to do this. Yeah. Um, so I think the two main things are one, the number of project proposals that we received really exploded, mm -hmm. which meant that, yeah, we had the luxury of, of saying, okay, we don't have to do every single project proposal because we need to generate the revenue right. uh, to be able to keep our heads afloat. Mm -hmm. So we, yeah, that, that gave us some, some, uh, yeah, some time and, uh, to, to really assess these problems. Mm -hmm. And the second one, and I think that's just been a, a lesson that we learned over time in terms of experience. Um, the, the people or the, the organization that would come to you as a developer with a medical problem are probably going to be um, academic researchers. So they are, they are doctors who are linked to university hospitals and, they, and they, they, they have an expertise in this area and they say, well, this, this would be interesting to have as a tool that, that would help in this part of, uh, of the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. What we, however, did not realize in the beginning and what we do realize very, very well now is that these are definitely not the people that treat these patients on a day-to-day -day basis. So the fact that a university researcher or somebody from a hospital who has like a, a uh, who's an expert in cardiology is interested in building some model, but then it turns out that, for example, the the nurse in a primary care facility is the one that's eventually going to use this product. 
and he or she would say, yeah, that 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 just does not fit my workflow. That's not really top of mind. That's not really worth the the effort here. Mm-hmm. There's a very big gap between what is scientifically medically interesting and what's practically uh, and as a healthcare system interesting. Sure, sure. So yeah, we really shifted that focus from starting starting a, a, a product development only when we were really, really sure that it, that it also came from the end users who are usually not the ones that are doing the, the scientific research uh, in universities on this topic. Mm-hmm. And do you, uh, as, the, as the kind of product owner, is this, are you the one that primarily does this or do you bring your engineers or data scientists or designers out and, and by the way, when I talk about design here, I'm talking kind of about capital D design. So product design, user experience, looking at the whole business and the outcomes we're trying to drive. It's kind of that larger picture here. So, but I'm curious, like literally who, who are the bodies I got in the car that drove to the hospital that did the shadowing? Was, was that all you or did you have a team uh, or multiple sessions? Like tell me uh, more, more about that. Yeah. In, the, in most of these cases, it's the, the product owners at our company. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have different product owners for the different types of products that we build. And luckily, most of them are, are medical doctors themselves. So they can also uh, rely on some experience uh, and knowledge from, uh, from their years in the clinic. But indeed, especially in the, 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 the earlier days, it would mainly be the product owner going there. But now these days, we really also focus on getting the data scientists to, uh, to tag along with the product owner as well such that you can have a shared vision and a shared idea of what's going on at the site. Got it. What, what's it like bringing in? Uh, so part of the reason I'm asking this question is, is I don't think this is, quote, normal for a lot of uh, people coming from the engineering side or from the data science side to be going out and, and talking to customers, thinking about, like, how does this person do their job? And how does my work fit into, you know, a bigger picture solution of what this person needs to do all day and what are the health outcomes we're going for it's not that that part of this product development process is is not about data science right it's about the human factors piece about how does our solution fit into this world so i'm curious like what's it like when you bring you know a data scientist out with you uh into the hospital setting is that is that something where they feel like wow this really changes the way I look at my work or is it like, oh, I kind of have to do this and I really just want to like, you know, work on my models in the closet by myself <laughs> and like, just leave me alone to work on technical stuff. Like how, have you seen a culture change at PacMed or, or any type of, what's a dynamic like? So that, that's also a bit of a difficult question uh-huh. uh, because I would like to say, yeah, the, the moment we started doing this, that we really changed the culture. But I think that our hiring policy is, is very clear, which is that we, yeah, we of course need the best technical talent, which, uh, which is scarce as uh, probably most of the listeners will also know. Sure. However, we also have a very, uh, very big other boundary condition, which is that the people that we bring in and have this, this societal drive in, in making something that will make the world better. Mm-hmm. And we've had a, well, quite a number of very talented applicants for whom this factor wasn't present enough mm-hmm. and that we had to let go, which uh, from a technical perspective is really too bad. But 
we are of course making things that 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 have at least an influence on uh, on the lives of patients mm-hmm. and uh, as one part of your question being how does that uh, what happens when you bring a, a, a data scientist to one of these places it's yeah it, it, it's really amazing <laughs> of course as i said for everybody going to a hospital that's not that's not a medical student or a doctor. It's 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 a wow experience. Mm-hmm. But we imagine working on an uh, intensive care data problem, for example, and you go through all this data and you look at it every single day, and then at some point you you go to a hospital and you 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 are at the intensive care and you see you see all these patients lying there. You see, eh, there's tubes and and pipes and and drains and wires everywhere, and there's alarms going off. Yep. Every minute, everywhere from patients that are going into whatever uh, medical emergency state, that, that has a huge impact on how people see the work that they're really doing. In your situation, we're, we're talking about life and death situations. It's, it, it, that's not necessarily common, but I, I think that the impact of bringing people out into the, the field, uh, whatever that is, that could be a corporate cubicle somewhere. It could be a hospital. It could be outside in a farm field as we had a pre on a previous episode but the point is usually there's a really positive thing that happens because i think people are able to connect their work with an actual human being that's going to potentially use this solution and it really when we look at software all day as you know most of us here are obviously working in the software space it's very easy to kind of like disconnect from any sense of human connection with someone else and yes. it's just like users, you know, it's kind of like this field of faceless people that are out there. But when you actually know, like, you know, Dr. Yost, you know, or someone that's working at this hospital and you're picturing this person with, you know, someone on a, you know, on a gurney, you know, that's just bleeding gunshot wound or whatever the heck it is. And you're thinking about like your iPad application, you're like, oh my gosh, like, how does this fit in? Like, you know, he's juggling all these different things. It really changes your perspective on how do I fit into that big picture of developing something that matters? It's no longer your little world. I think it's a, it really can turn the light on. So it's, it's something that I advocate for, you know, at least doing a part of the time. If you're, if you're touching the solution, uh, your staff, you know, your staff and you, if you're a product owner, or even if you're more on the analytics side, but you're responsible for, delivering decision support, it's really important to go get a feel for what people are doing all day. Like what is their job, whether insurance or, you know, even if it's something not as visceral as, as, as the medical field, um, it's really important to have that perspective. If you really want to deliver something that that's not based on a lot of guessing and assumptions or falling back on the, it's their problem. Like I don't, well, if they don't understand what this means, I, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that the math is right. You know, is that, yeah. that, that perspective doesn't work. And especially in your case, in this situation, not only does it not work, but it's not safe. Like that, that's a, there's potentially lives and health outcomes at risk, right? I mean. Yeah, 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 most definitely. Yeah. Let, let's move on to something else. There's this funny, uh, you had a funny slide in your presentation. Sometimes it works because modern Western medicine is like Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> that was really funny. You had this great comic, a uh, little graphic illustration there. What does that mean in the context of developing decision support software? Uh, I'm, I'm a bit worried that my answer is going to be dangerous because I presume he listens to your show. 
I have a feeling Donald Trump is not listening to this particular podcast. <laughs> that uh, I, I think I might agree with you there. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, it's 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 an idea that we got um, well actually some time ago already, and it's 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 a bit of a difficult statement. So I'll, I'll add a bit of nuance after explaining it. So. What happens in, in, in modern Western medicine, eh? so if you look at the States and Europe, for example, you are treated in all fields of medicine according to certain guidelines. And those guidelines are based on uh, clinical medical research and uh, randomized controlled trials. Mm-hmm. Um, so they give very pure research outcomes, as you would call them, saying, well, given somebody has a, uh, an infection, a urinary tract infection, for example, this, uh, these randomized controlled trials have shown that this, this antibiotic, say antibiotic number two, works best, so give that. And that's very nice, but the problem is, and this is where the Donald Trump statement comes in, it's that had this, this, this modern Western medicine, this, this uh, randomized controlled trials, they are incredibly sexist and racist and they discriminate against uh, the sick and the elderly and the young and basically anybody who isn't incredibly healthy, uh, young and present. Because what happens is to do a study like this, you need to have a study population. And well, let's uh, ask you a question in between. Would you test a new drug on an 80 year old person? Would I personally test a drug on an 80-year-old person? Well, say you're a doctor allowed to test drugs on you on people. Uh, I'm not sure I have enough information to know yet. I'd probably, <laughs> I'd be afraid to test anything on a on a human being without <laughs> without having a little bit more information, I guess. So I'm yeah, gonna I deflect your I, question. <laughs> I can oh, fair, good call, good call. Um, so yeah, it's of course if, if if we have a medication or a treatment that we're gonna that we're gonna test, it's you can't really test it on on groups that who are at a higher risk of of of, uh, of negative side effects. Mm-hmm. So you won't treat it on, for example, pregnant women, um, on the elderly. You won't you won't test something new on very young children, for example. And also, you're going to 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 get a study population from the people that that have this certain disease predominantly. So. Um, and I'll, I'll just get to the example because I think that will make it a lot clearer. We developed a product that helps, well, it, it, it's a decision support tool, but it gives advice on which type of antibiotic, and there's say eight of them for this particular problem, which antibiotic should you give for a, a urinary tract infection? And what we saw there is that and the, these decisions are now based on, on medical guidelines. And those medical guidelines are based on, say, a 30-year span of doing medical research. Mm-hmm. And when we read those papers on which the, the, that, that, are, that are this body of medical research, we saw that approximately 5,000 young, Caucasian, healthy, non-pregnant women were included. Mm-hmm. Some 70 pregnant women zero patients with like uh, severe uh, urinary tract infections, zero patients with, with what you call comorbidities or co-medications, so that had other diseases or taking other medications. Mm-hmm. And um, as is uh, not 
often the case in other parts of the world, no men included. Hmm. And that is, of course, a bit of a problem because you are then going, hey, you're going to base the guidelines on that study population, but you are then also going to extrapolate its results on patients that were never included. Right. And we know from research that uh, drugs are, 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 are they, they have a different effect on, on different types of people. So we know there's a big difference between Asian people and, and, and European people, for example, and in how they metabolize certain drugs. Mm-hmm. So to, to, to have the idea that a, um, an antibiotic that would work for uh, this, say, 25-year-old uh, young uh, Caucasian woman would work equally well for an uh, Asian man of 70 years old who is overweight and is taking heart medication. That's just not the case. Mm-hmm. So what we did to build this product is we got the actual data from, say, 300,000 patients who went to a GP with a urinary tract infection. And indeed, what you see in the data is that these people that are included in the, the original study population that's indeed 50% or so of the population, so the, the majority. But the remaining 50% is, is types of patients that are not included in this original study. So uh, we make a machine learning model out of this. And basically what you get from that is you get personalized individual guidelines uh, stating which, which medication to prescribe and guidelines that also can be used for, for patients that you are not able to include in in classical scientific uh, medical research. That's, of course, not saying that, that, that there's something wrong with how this, this classical medical research is being done. This is, as I, as I explained, you can't include these types of patients in a study, mm-hmm. but you do get a gap because of that between the study population and reality. I'm curious. So in the, in the interfaces then that you provide, did you find that you need to you need to present like a recommendation that's based on the original trials or studies that were done in addition to a recommendation that's based on your algorithms so that it's almost like there's an itch there and I, I imagine when you start showing a, a, a treatment recommendation that feels foreign to a healthcare practitioner who's always done it based on the research, there's some friction there, right? Like maybe there's a trust issue. So do you have to show both of them? And then there's some explanation of like why, you know, the personalized recommendation is this, the historical generalized study says this, and here's why, you know, we recommend the personal one is because X, Y, and Z, and the, you know, the trial didn't factor in overweight men who are Asians. Like, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. So actually you, you, you did most of the, expl- uh, the you did most <laughs> of the explaining, um, because that is indeed exactly what we did. So we build okay. um, as this is a, an important thing to state. So also in this case, we make decision support. So we don't say take antibiotic number two. Right. We say these are the eight possible antibiotics, and we say these are the probabilities of them curing the disease. Sure. So indeed, you see the the different probability of success, and then also we say. In that graphical interface, well, these are, for example, the two uh, antibiotics that the current guidelines would recommend. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, this is also a very interesting thing for this. For the people that are included in the study population, you, you find identical results. So also our model 
says that the highest probability of success would be achieved by getting the the, the antibiotics that are also prescribed by the guidelines. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, that is a study population that was included. So, indeed, we show the probabilities of success for all the, the different antibiotics. We show what the current guidelines would prescribe. And then we indeed also show, um, yeah, basically how this, this, this predictions came about. So for antibiotic two, we say, well, based on the fact that in our data, we have 13,000 highly comparable patients who had also these characteristics. We saw that this medication worked in uh, 90% of the cases. And that's why we recommend this. Mm-hmm. What is interesting here, I think, is that as you state, there is some friction, but and I, I have to see whether I can uh, remember the phrase, but there are these medical guidelines, but everybody knows that they are, eh, it's in the name, they are guidelines. Right. So if you have a grounded reason to deviate from those guidelines, then that is actually, that, that's, well, it's not really expected, but it's, that's good practice. Mm-hmm. So, of course, there will be some friction in terms of, doctors who say well i don't really know what to do with something else than these guidelines but especially the more and the the somewhat older and the more experienced doctors they are very used to deviating from the guidelines based on their own experience Mm -hmm. so they might actually see that that and those prior deviations that they did are now also what would come from from a model predicting something Mm -hmm. i think it's fascinating to you know to to see, you know, during the the process of validating a tool or an application like this, to see how doctors, I'm totally self-reflecting here. Like, if I was working on this, how it would be really interesting to see how doctors react to new treatments or a path that they hadn't really thought about, or maybe they were suspicious about, but the tool provided a level of evidence or clarity that really. Uh, turn them onto it and and made them kind of reevaluate their maybe their past methodologies for treating a situation like that I, I i could see the there's a really cool educational aspect there that could be fun to to monitor you know if you were testing you know testing the product out with someone i don't know if you guys have done much of that yet to kind of see how they react to you know a surprising probability recommendation or whatever you, I, I know you don't call it a recommendation but a you know a probability for a particular you know remedy yeah so i I know this sounds like a really interesting place to be yeah yeah most definitely i think um a very interesting example in that field is um have of course the the very interesting thing from machine learning on medical data is that you could get that the model finds something that 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 the doctors don't know yet right or that they don't recognize, and then hopefully they say, we don't recognize this, uh, this is wrong. And then we are challenged to have really work through it and validate that it is indeed correct. Right. And if it then still holds, then it, it means that we found something new. Right. That's very interesting. So we did a, um, a project. We didn't really make a product out of it, but an, uh, an analysis project where we uh, worked in a psychiatry department where we looked at the effectiveness of antidepressants combined with uh, sedatives. Is sedatives the proper word here in English? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, they, are, they are very often given in combination. However, 
this is also what psychiatrists would say. If you would ask 10 different psychiatrists to treat one patient, you would get 10 different treatments. So that's a very, there's a lot of intuition going in there as well. Mm -hmm. And at some point we found in our data analysis that we showed, well, for this type of patient who part of uh, their depression lay laid in the fact that they had uh, insomnia and, and had trouble sleeping, which is a severe driver of depression. If they were given a certain type of antidepressants combined with a certain type of sedatives, that that did not work, eh? or it worked way uh, way less effectively than than it should. Hmm. And so we identified there that we said, well, all of these different this combination works on the the sleeping capabilities of this patient. We think. And that, that was all very new. And we presented this to a group of psychiatrists when we wrapped up the project. And one of the psychiatrists stood up and, and uh, he said, I, I was at a conference last week in the United States and they, they presented a paper here that, I, that they just published that talked about this correlation. Wow. So that, that, was, that was very interesting that uh, our, our model was able to pick up on something like this that then... And luckily, in that case, was also found in uh, more more classical medical research, ten thousand kilometers away. But yeah, uh, so that's that. Th- those are, of course, the very very cool things if you could find something new like that. Yeah, that's that sounds exciting. Like it's got to be really fun when you guys land on these little gold nuggets here. You know, <laughs> even if yeah. they need more research, right? Like if they don't become you know necessarily the status quo but they feed a new line of inquiry or research to go out and really do a a a deeper study to dig into some causality right like something beyond a correlation yeah that is of course the models that we build are that they will uh, mainly be uh correlation driven Mm -hmm. of course we have within pac a research group that that looks into causal inference but as for now, it, it's it's mainly correlation. But of mm-hmm. course, in there there will be hidden some some causal relations. So if you could provide a nice starting point to uh, to do a, a more classical scientific research project, and indeed eh, prove or disprove a causal relation somewhere in there, then that's that's of course a very cool starting point. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes, this has been a great conversation. I I've, I've, I've been really enjoying listening to kind of your experience here working with uh, medical you know professionals and and figuring out how to improve health outcomes here and i i wanted to ask one last question here again kind of thinking about the the user experience piece here and and i think we covered this in our call a little bit uh, our, our, like our little planning call but uh, was it correct that you said that uh, unfortunately or maybe fortunately d- depending on the situation you don't you don't take any input data after a suggested course of action is presented. Like here are five different scenarios and the probabilities that they may treat this patient successfully. The doctor doesn't input the treatment that was used and you don't, you don't then go and see, did that actually work? And then feed that back into the model. And then that becomes part of the product and the recommendations. Is that correct? Because there's a either GDPR or there's health regulations that the, the training, the, model can't be trained on any new information except what was disclosed at the time that you got your approval? Did, did I say that right? Uh, yeah, ish, indeed. So what we do is because we work under this CE certification uh, in the States, uh, an FDA regulation, mm-hmm. 
to be able to to have on the market a uh, a medical technology, you need to have a an incredibly detailed technical file that explains every single yeah detail of this of this product. Uh-huh. Which means that you also until a deep level of detail have to explain what your trading data looks like. Right. And so that means that this this live continuous optimization of your models whilst they are running isn't really possible in, in our scenario. Mm-hmm. That that doesn't really have to be the, the biggest problem because you can simply just say, okay, we will collect the data that's being generated in practice and retrain a model every three or six or 12 months, something like that. Uh-huh. But I think that a lot of the data science, because you're making algorithms and you're coding stuff, really adheres to this, this, this lean startup methodology, right? Where you can very quickly iterate and test and retrain and test again. Mm-hmm. Those sort of timelines and, and development uh, speeds aren't really possible in the, in the medical realm. Right. Yeah, well, the risk factors are obviously different, right? <laughs> yeah, it's not it's, just a software bug. Yeah. <laughs> no, definitely, and it's it's just it's it's yeah. luckily it is heavily regulated, right? Uh, actually, in terms of what, what you stated, that the treatment that was chosen and then what happened that they can't put that in the data. Uh, actually, that's that's one of the biggest challenges that there is in medical machine learning is that uh, the outcome measure in general often isn't in the data. Right. Nobody checks a box that says treatment worked, yes or no. Right. So really determining and defining and refining an outcome measure in our data, that is that is an insanely large amount of, of the work that we do, mm-hmm. uh, which is both interesting and challenging. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> well, thanks again. Yeah, this has been great. T- tell uh, listeners where they could uh, follow you is like follow me on LinkedIn or are you on social media at all? Like if, if people wanted to to keep in touch with what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. So there's, uh, I think you can follow us on, on LinkedIn, which is uh, PacMed, which is P-A-C-M-E-D. Uh-huh. Not to be confused with PacMed, the Pacific Medical Center. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we, uh, we get about uh, a couple of dozens of new colleagues every month from people that get a job at the Pacific Medical Center and subscribe to our LinkedIn. <laughs> We're PacMed.ai, is that correct? Yeah, that's our website, PacMed.ai, which uh, offers yeah, all, all our cool new developments and all our new stories. Uh, so yeah, if you're interested, definitely uh, have a look at the website. Cool. And you're also on LinkedIn, is that correct? Yeah, definitely. Cool. All right. Yeah, I'll find your uh, your link and, and put you on there. And this has been uh, a really great conversation. So thanks for sharing uh, sharing some information about what's happening with machine learning and data science and, and the in the medical field. So this is great. Yeah, cool. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.